This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. President Trump has signed an executive order that starts the process of unwinding the policies of the Obama administration surrounding climate change. Those changes cover emission standards, mining coal on federal land, and many other areas. He says it's to help business thrive as well as to cut back on government overreach. But is that truly the case? We talk about this with Eric Ortz, Wharton Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics. He's also Director of the Initiative for Global Environmental Leadership. He joins us in the studio and on the phone with us, Denise Grab, who's a senior attorney at the Institute for Policy Integrity at New York University, and Justin Gunlock, who's a climate change fellow at Columbia Law School. Great to have you all with us. Denise, Justin, great to have you with us on the phone. Great to be here. Indeed. Thank you. Eric, great to see you again, as always. Good to see you, too. Thank you. I guess, Justin, I'll start with you. The reaction to the executive order yesterday, uh, probably not surprising, but your general reaction to it. Uh, It certainly wasn't surprising. There were some points of light in that uh, it seems that they didn't sweep away every uh, previous executive order that mentioned climate change. So there were some that related to resilience that that squeaked through. Uh, Of course, it's disappointing to see... Uh, the work that was meant to build the beginning of a coherent climate policy swept away. Denise? The executive order, I would say, I mean, it's definitely disappointing, but the executive order itself is a lot of sound and fury signifying not much um, on its own. Whether it will result in substantive changes does remain to be seen. It doesn't remove requirements for agencies to meet duties under statutes like the Clean Air Act. Um, the endangerment finding uh, from EPA that carbon dioxide causes harm to human health and welfare remains in effect, and agencies will have to continue to meet those requirements, and states and environmental groups can challenge if they don't. Eric? Yeah, I generally agree with uh, what what, uh, what Denise says here. That's a lot of sound and fury. There is a, it's really a photo op. I mean, when the signing took place, you have a bunch of coal miners and coal companies uh, right. there. So I don't think that's really. Uh, I don't think it's really much more than delivering on the campaign rhetoric that we saw from Trump. I would also add another bright spot is that the Paris Agreement was not. Yeah. Uh, uh, targeted. And so you currently have a division within the administration, it appears, uh, with uh, Tillerson State uh, and some others. I would expect them, some military um, and intelligence types also saying, look, what are, you, what are we going to do? Why are we doing this? Uh, the, there's a lot of flexibility in the Paris Agreement. Uh, there's, pro- there's, a, uh, there's a likelihood anyway you're going to get close to some of the targets with changes that you may have anyway in, in areas like natural gas substitutions, et cetera. Um, the fact is that despite what the administration may say, coal is not really coming back. Right. Um, the natural gas, and it's not really regulated. It's not for the most part, at least, regulations that are killing coal. Or there's not really any such thing as a war on coal. It's basically natural gas is taking out coal, and there are um, other regulations on the books. It's also to be emphasized what Denise just said about um, the regulatory process. You can't just uh, remove a regulation like the clean uh, the, the, the clean power plan or the endangerment finding or any anything else really that's a serious environmental regulation. 
the Trump administration has to go through the same process of putting in a regulation as the Obama administration did. Yep. And what that uh, means for those who aren't lawyers who may be listening, you basically have to go through a notice and comment period. You have to somehow motivate EPA, who's very unmotivated right now, to actually do the science and to do the uh, crafting of the regulation. Uh, and it has to go through a period. Um, the other, the, there's a couple other variables here. Uh, you, you can't just unilaterally stop doing things without attracting lawsuits also. So yeah. if you're, by executive order, if you're violating the law, just as we've seen in the immigration context, you're going to have uh, uh, NGOs coming after you and saying, I'm sorry, but you can't just, uh, you can't just turn around and do X. Uh, when the law says why uh, is the rule. So we're going to see all of those kind of pushbacks. One last area of pushback, which we already are seeing, is the states. Uh, there's concurrent regulation in this area, even more so than in the immigration field, where for the right. most part, the federal government has a monopoly of, uh, of authority. Uh, but in, in environmental regulation, the states play a huge role, and uh, they will step up. And I've already said that they're, uh, in many states will be stepping up their regulatory responses. So it's a complicated picture, but I, I think it's uh, to, to have been expected that we have this from the Trump administration. But we have to remember that uh, change in this area will take place over time. It's not good news right. for sure, but I think it's – for people who are following this, it's nothing that we really didn't expect. And something like not, have, you know, the Paris Agreement not being in there is, I think, cause for some, uh, cause for some hope at least on a few uh, areas. Denise, let me ask you about the legal side of this for a second, because as Eric mentioned, it, it sure would seem to be a situation where we will see some legal challenges a, a, as we move along in this. Correct? Definitely. Um, the executive order itself cannot be immediately challenged in court, but as Eric mentioned, um, various states and environmental organizations uh, will have many chances to challenge parts of this order in court as the agencies implement it. So, for example, when an agency reverses course on a rule and doesn't sufficiently explain why, groups can sue to strike down that change in policy. Likewise, if the agency's moves don't satisfy the requirements of the statute at issue, for example, the Clean Air Act, um, the agency's actions can be struck down. I do expect we will see lots of challenges like this in coming months and years. So, Justin, the, 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 the essential on this is that, obviously, as Eric said, you know, we have this announcement, uh, but a lot of what we're talking about here, we're still a couple of years away from really having anything potentially moving forward on this. Does it, is that correct? That's true. And here, as with other areas of policy, it seems like we might be saved by the administration's uh, lack of hiring and, in some instances, lack of competence. So there is uh, certainly reason to think not only that we have years to go because of the standard regulatory process, but also because of how averse they seem to be to fill the, the slots at EPA, for instance. Um, concretely, with respect to the Clean Power Plan, its fate is not really certain. Uh, there are a couple different steps that need to be taken. The order actually doesn't really envision a single path for how it is that the thing should be undone. So you can expect a couple different maneuvers. And the D.C. Circuit is also uh, a player in this game. The, the court heard en banc, that means all of the judges, uh, heard arguments on the Clean Power Plan. Their opinion has yet to come down. And if the opinion upholds it, that would certainly complicate the administration's idea of simply wiping the thing off the books, most likely by asking for what is called a, a voluntary remand, where they will uh, ask the court, you know what, we'd, we'd like to rethink this, please give it back. I wanted to ask you as well about uh, the, the, the not 
pulling out of the Paris Agreement, because that was kind of interesting. Eric mentioned it as well, but it was very interesting to me because you would think that that would be a part of this process of, of kind of unwinding a lot of these regulations. Why do you think it was not in your mind? Well, as has already been mentioned, uh, I think there is uh, disagreement within the administration about what to do and why. Uh, I, I think that, frankly, at this point, it looks like the Department of Defense maybe has the, the clearest vision of the role climate change can be expected to play, and uh, it's unclear what the machinations are internally, but uh, evidently there are those who think it would be a very bad idea, uh, maybe for the right reasons. Others maybe think it would be a bad idea, perhaps for reasons that I wouldn't agree with. But in any case, see some benefit to staying in. Uh, there, there are clips out there on YouTube of uh, Bush administration-era negotiations over U.N. climate agreements that uh, that are difficult to watch because the administration was so intransigent and very much a problem for other members of the international community. They may well, the administration now, may well envision something similar. Uh, in any case, yes, I would agree. It looks like it is uh, at odds with the rest of the content of, of the executive order. Um, but, of course, you know, this administration is not necessarily uh, building reputation for coherent and clear moves in one direction. Yeah, yeah. Just to pick up on the on the Paris Agreement issue, uh, I think it, I think it is uh, it, it is encouraging that that's open. And one of the things that we should keep in mind is that climate change is not going to go away just because you decide not to pay any attention to it. So right. uh, this is really, I think, taking a long-term perspective, and businesses uh, should also keep this in mind, and I think they are keeping it in mind, that uh, the issue is not going to be going away. And so uh, one particular group that um, was just mentioned by Justin, the Defense Department, but also intelligence, um, and I think this is a mistake, actually, for many environmentalists who have been pushing this issue. In the United States, it's almost... We're very unusual in having this issue become so politicized, and right. it may have came. It may have come from Al Gore winning Nobel Prize, and then you know there was just a reaction. Yeah. It may come from uh, the power of the fossil fuel industry in the United States and the ability for them to influence the political process, which was, is pretty obvious at this point. You have an, I mean, it's it's. it's a, I don't think I could imagine any administration of either side signing a major. Uh, exe uh, executive order of this kind, and just having the coal company and the and the right miners just—that's it, <laughs> right okay, there by like, your okay, side. You're not yeah. even pretending yeah. that anybody else is actually behind this. So, and I think the real way to think, the better way to think about this, is the national security point of view. And it's no accident that you have uh, state and defense and the intelligence agencies taking this seriously. And if you talk to people in those areas. If you don't do anything about climate change, we must prepare for what the security issues are on yeah, that, right? Yeah. You, you, uh, if you think the refugee problem and climate of, of uh, right now is bad, or even you know, if you want to go back to immigration, if you think the refugee problem is bad now, just add a couple more degrees centigrade to uh, where you were heading, and it is a major military security kind of problem. And so that's. Uh, that's why these but, and 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 it and it also causes other. It's going to be causing and already as a factor in Syria, for example, other conflicts. So that fact, I think, starts to moderate if you take that perspective. The idea that you know you really do have to do something. One one other point is that uh, 
and I think this was implicit in, 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 in Denise's comment, is that you are, you are required by law to regulate climate right now. Yeah. So you may, maybe yeah. you change the Supreme Court and they switch. But if you don't do that, right now, there, and, you, and you're not able to reduce, it uh, doesn't seem like, how are you going to say, well, climate gases are not dangerous? That's what EPA said. To reverse that, you have to find a lot of scientists who are right. going to come forward and say, oh, yeah, we made a mistake. It's not dangerous. Well, you know, the majority of the American people, by a very large margin, every almost the rest of the world, all of the countries of the world who signed a Paris Agreement, all are a, a evidence that that is just not the case. It scientifically is a problem. And so if you're going to try to take back the clean power plan, you have to remember – you have to have something to put back in place. So it's it's yeah. gonna it's a rerun of the Obamacare, right? Let's like we want to repeal Obamacare, but you have to have something to replace it, or it right. blows up. So same thing here. Now on that score, there was uh, unfortunately I think there was a, a, an opportunity for the Trump administration when Michael Bloomberg, ha Hank Paulson, and some other. Uh, senior independent Republican types who are following the climate issue very closely came and said, you know, this is a golden opportunity. Why don't we just replace this and do what economists have been saying for a long time, and that is put a tax or a charge on carbon. Right. That's, the, that's been uh, suggested by economists as the most efficient way to try to incentivize switching to alternative fuels, et cetera. And I think you would have had a, a clear opportunity to do tax reform that in would include putting a price on carbon, uh, and you would solve this uh, problem that you need some kind of replacement. But so far, no, well, no, 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 you know, they, it, it's too politically, I guess, uh, risk. It's not possible for the, for the GOP and the Trump administration to even admit that climate change is a problem, let yeah. alone take the next step and say, hey, here we can do a better solution. And, and you have, they have control of the they have control of Congress. You could easily get this uh, enough Democratic votes uh, in favor of that. But uh, they don't seem to take any strategy. <laughs> they don't yeah. seem to want to take any kind of alternative strategy that would make sense. And mm -hmm. it's, it's frustrating in that respect. We're listening to Knowledge of Wharton on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. We're talking about the changes uh, potentially coming forth from the Trump administration <laughs> on climate change. In studio with Wharton's Eric Wartz and on the phone with Denise Grab of New York University and Justin Gunlock of Columbia Law School. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844 866 is the number. Or again, if you can't get to your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter at bizradio111 or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L O N E Y 21. Denise, speaking of carbon, I know something that, that that is an area that you follow closely as well. Yes. Um, in particular, the Institute for Policy Integrity has done a lot of work on the social cost of carbon, which was addressed in the executive order yesterday. Um, the social cost of carbon is basically a um, monetary value that the uh, government has calculated over a number of years painstakingly using the best available science and economics to determine sort of what is the cost to, um, to the public of each additional ton of carbon dioxide emissions. And that number is used in benefit cost analyses of rules to help make the best decisions, help decide which policies make the most sense um, for uh, implementing uh, climate change type um, improvements, as well as just any type of regulation that affects, um, that affects the climate. And the administration attempted to, to strike a blow to that number yesterday. They 
uh, tried to invalidate the number issued by the interagency working group under the Obama administration and have tried to replace um, it replaced the number with an agency-based alternative under cost-benefit analysis uh, from the Bush administration. Now, I would argue that the social cost of carbon is already consistent with Circular A4 with that guidance from the Bush administration. Um, the efforts by the administration yesterday to get rid of the number that the Obama administration put forward uh, really seem to amount to a lot of unnecessary effort, really getting rid of all a lot of great work by that um, strong interagency body and uh, leaving a lot of uncertainty for the agencies about how to go forward. Mm-hmm. Um, if those agencies do depart from their prior approach to this analysis without explaining why, they can be very val- vulnerable uh, to court challenges later t- to those uh, to those regulations. It, Justin, for, for, let me shift on, on one thing for a second, because uh, Eric brought up a good point about the, what we're going to see with states going forward. And, and it really brings up what's kind of going on in California right now, especially around uh, automobiles and emissions and, and fuel standards, because California being as as big as it is, has basically had their own set of standards now. And it feels like in this in this kind of push by the Trump administration to put more and more on the states that we may see more and more of this type of uh, of regulation and issue brought up at the state level, whether it be California or or some other state in the future. I think that's right. I think you've already seen it. In fact, in California, it's basically a tradition. Uh, you've seen it in more diverse ways elsewhere as well. The, the key thing to keep in mind with respect to California has to do with CAFE standards. That's corporate average fuel economy. These are the, the standards by which the federal government tells automakers, uh, thou shalt build a fleet that emits no more than a given ratio, and the ratio is very complicated. Uh, California has for a long while been uh, able, well, has received a waiver from the federal government to set standards that it would prefer. Uh, the standards are generally tighter that was initially prompted by California having worse air quality. And, of course, uh, in certain respects, and that is in, in very small areas, they still do, though otherwise they're, they're a bit out ahead. Now, other states can imitate California's more stringent regulation once it's in place. This sets up a battle over whether or not they get that waiver. But, of course, it's not just CAFE standards. There are other areas, too. And uh, being in New York, we, we have relatively more contact with folks here, and there is a lot of effort going on. Uh, not just in New York, elsewhere as well, but New York is arguably out ahead with respect to a reformulation, not just reducing the emissions intensity, but a reformulation of the electricity sector right. to make it possible to integrate renewables, to integrate storage, to integrate what are called uh, distributed energy resources. So, well, wouldn't, that, wouldn't that be something that, I mean, you mentioned New York, but pretty much all up and down the Northeast corridor at this point because of the numbers of people that are in this region and the amount of power use that is in this region? Absolutely. And there are nine states that participate in what is called the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. Uh, they, are, they collaborate insofar as they all share the same uh, price for a certain set of power plants, uh, that is a price on carbon. And in those states, consistent with the policy logic behind that program, there are also a variety of other programs, uh, all of which push toward a decarbonization of the electricity sector and efforts to figure out uh, how to squeeze carbon out of the places where it is most rife. That includes increasingly transportation, but electricity is the first target. What the Clean Power Plan did was provide a degree of coherence that now states are going to have to supply on their own. And Reggie is a good example of the, the potential for that to be done, but it is harder 
for states to do without some kind of federal referee, uh, federal norm. Uh, but yes, absolutely, you will see it continue. And, and politically, you may even see a great degree of pressure on states than there might have been otherwise. Yeah, and I think it's uh, it's more than the Atlantic Seaboard, too. It's really the whole country because, uh, the remember, the Obama administration has been in power for almost a decade, and you have had uh, this is not a new issue of uh, changing the renewables, uh, being concerned about this. So just as you have seen the fossil fuel companies taking a, a position on this and getting their way, at, at least at the moment, in, 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 the, in winning the presidency, you still have a lot of businesses on the other side who have made major investments and yeah. are looking to make the next investment. So they're not going to just sit back and uh, they're they realizing that they can't affect the Oval Office. But that's uh, they're going to go to the state, uh, uh, state houses and they're going to uh, lobby in other ways to continue – uh, the agenda, and I don't think uh, that's another thing. I think we, sh- uh, you know, it's easy to just follow the headlines and become pessimistic and and feel. But but the fact of the matter is, the president actually doesn't have that much power uh, to just change things. Just because right. you elect a president who's against climate change does not mean uh, you suddenly change everything. And it's going to be challenged in all the ways that we were discussing. It's also true that a lot of businesses are going to be ahead of the uh, curve on pushing back. Yeah. And are uh, uh, it's, uh, even, even um, and, and there are a couple of things to just mention. Even at the signing ceremony, one of the head coal lobbyists uh, said, He's not going to build any more coal plants. Right. Now, that's a pretty good signal that all these, uh, you know, there's not going to be any kind of coal boom coming back when you're there with the, with, you know, there's no, there's no, the, the reality is you are not going to have suddenly everything going back to coal. And so if you don't have that, then there's going to be continued uh, development for alternative energies. There are going to be continued uh, pushes for uh, energy efficiency. Yeah. Uh, businesses are in this. They already see that you can, you're making money on this. If you are a multinational, you're not going to just, uh, you're going to look at this, I, I would think, as a blip on the screen, basically, because other, the rest of the world really isn't changing. You have to look at uh, competitors in China who are, uh, who are, who are now going to have a more open uh, field for solar energy development and yeah. that sort of thing. I think there are going to be business interests that don't want to just cede the territory to uh, in, the, in the future in this area to the Chinese or to other other countries. So I think you can be more optimistic when you look at the complexity of the U.S. system uh, and federalism. In this case, switches the other side. You know, it used to be when Obama was in power, the states were could be a check on the power of the government. And you yeah. saw that happening with uh, uh, Republicans taking back control on state houses, et cetera. Now the shoe's on the other foot, but we still have federalism. And so all of these, all of these um, uh, potential areas of, of regulation and, uh, in an innovative direction are still there for the, for the states to take uh, on, the, on the other direction now. Denise, I want to go back for, to the, the auto industry for a second because obviously uh, President Trump is, has made it well known and publicized these meetings that he has had with various CEOs from, from various sectors, and the auto industry was one of them uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, I don't think it's, it's too hard to figure out now what was part of the conversation in that yeah, in that chat about the emission standards and and the fuel economy standards and and trying to make change on that. But again, with with the rules that that California has specifically that state, it feels like we could be setting up for quite a battle on that state because of how California has you know has has worked this over the last decade or two. 
Oh, definitely. Um, yes, uh, the audio, auto industry CEOs, their perspective is not as clear. As you mentioned, um, we, we are likely setting up for, for a battle between the California approach to CAFE standards and what will likely be a revised um, federal approach to, to CAFE standards, which will end up being um, not as stringent. And, um, and as, as Justin and Eric alluded to earlier, you know, it's not necessarily clear immediately which way that will play out. So California, as Justin mentioned, has been granted a waiver by the federal government for its own standards, um, ca- CAFE standards, uh, corporate average fuel ca- economy standards. Yep. Um, and other states can adopt California's approach. Now, the auto industry, obviously, they're going to want to sell in California and these other states that adopt California's approach. It's about 25% of the market, um, the, all those states together. So the auto industry, they're really going to want regulatory certainty. They don't, you know, they are upset about the potential um, stringency of these uh, uh, standards through 2025, but the auto industry has met tough standards before they can meet them. What they really want is regulatory regulatory certainty. And as this battle plays out in court between California wanting to keep its waiver that the federal government has granted, and uh, the federal government hasn't revoked that waiver yet, it's not actually addressed in its executive order. But if it goes down that path, you know, as that legal battle plays out, the auto companies probably are just going to want um, a clear path forward over this uncertainty. So I'm not sure that they will end up better off. Great to have you all with us today. Thank you very much for joining us, Eric. Great seeing you again. Thanks so much. As always. Denise, Justin, great to have you on the phone with us today. Thank you for your time. Thank, Thank you. you. All the best. Uh, Eric Ortz from the Wharton School, Denise Grab from New York University, Justin Gunlock from Columbia Law School. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.up.